Yes, do. <laughs> can I just check that my PowerPoint isn't going to do what it did last time and only... Uh, can you just put it on for me before you pray? I want to see that it, it does operate. Yeah, it's operating as it should. Thank you. Thank you, Adele. Father God, we thank you for Peter. We thank you for how you have worked in him over the previous days. Have you planted the word in his heart? And we pray now, Lord, that you will anoint him by your spirit, that we may hear, that he might speak the word you have for us today. We pray these things in your blessed name, Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you for your prayers. Yeah, I can make excuses that Michelle's not been very well, and therefore we've been rather confined to our home, and so I'm completely out of touch with what's going on elsewhere. But here we are. It's rather fun. Uh, and thank you, Jeanette, for the text message. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we are thinking about the Creed again, and it's Mothering Sunday, and it's very apposite that we have the Virgin Mary as one of the key points in this particular section, the third in a series that Adele and Paul Jazz have already covered. And um, it's suitable to have it on Mothering Sunday, although I always remember my mother went to preach in the 1960s at a local church, and in, that's in the days when you had painted signs outside churches on, on pieces of paper that a sign writer would have produced for her. And uh, she, it, she noticed it, said, oh yes, preacher, Mrs. Guinness, Moffing Sunday. So. <laughs> This particular day has always been slightly ruined by that event for me. But here we've got Virgin Mary, you've got the whole theme, and I'll not be touching on that too greatly today, the, the mother issue, but bear in mind that it's there importantly in our creed. Just some reminders before I really get into the section we're in uh, about the usefulness of a creed. Um, you know, the creed can help us to remember some key points it's a bit like the insurance policy has key facts on the first page, trying to summarize the essential things you need to know about your insurance policy. Far more exciting a creed because it's dealing with stuff that's really important and interesting. Uh, it's much more important. I mean, wow, on the third day he rose again. Or wow, uh, you know, we believe in the resurrection. Or, you know, those things should give us a wow when we read these words because they're summarizing and helping us to remember those key points. The second thing that it can help us to do is to remember uh, that we are in unity with other Christians worldwide. The creed helps to bring us together. And a few Sundays ago, I was preaching from 1 Thessalonians uh, where Paul talks about the second coming and there are so many myriad opinions as to what's going to happen next that we can end up divided and people will split apart from the Christian community over minor issues. But here a creed reminds us of the point that we are in unity with other Christians who accept this particular creed. Some creeds, some statements of faith exclude people too easily. I remember the uh, UCCF, the Christian Unions Organization for Universities and Schools, have a statement of faith. And in the past, I had friends who said, I can't sign it because there's some rather strict words in there that I really cannot take. And it excluded them. They weren't allowed to be on committees for the UCCF or to participate in teaching. So it can be excluding in a negative sense if you go too rigid with it. Another thing that, of course, a creed can do is 
make us aware of heresy, and that was brought out by Adele very clearly in the first time as to why the Nicene Creed began to be written because of serious heresies. I find it sad when I meet just a few clergy over my time, lifetime uh, who cannot accept the Nicene Creed. It's a shame. But there we are, there are some. And, uh, you know, there are some who say, I just don't accept the virginal conception of Jesus or the resurrection. We need to be aware of people like that because then we'll see how it influences what they teach and what they believe comes through in their teaching. Some years ago, I introduced a Jewish friend of mine from Israel. Dov was his name, and I took him to a neighboring parish because I wanted to see the church. And Dov was invited in by the vicar for coffee. And over coffee, to my amazement, this vicar began to say to, that he too did not believe in the deity of Jesus nor in the Trinity. And uh, Dov uh, gave him quite some good answers because the vicar made the assumption that being an Israeli Jew, not realizing he was a messianic believer in Jesus as his Lord, and gave him somewhat an earful to. I asked this particular incumbent when he retired, are you going to preach in the local church where you retire? And he said, oh goodness me, no, I don't believe half the stuff we have to say. Well, at least one knew, it is a pity really, he said, I can't, take on the Nicene Creed as it's stated. Of course, the next thing a creed can do, and we've been told this uh, by our two previous speakers on this subject, it keeps people who are seriously in heresy, false religions from joining in. Jehovah's Witnesses being an example. They don't believe in the Trinity very clearly or the deity of Jesus in the way we do. When I was in Lancashire for many years, the Mormons built one of their European temples there. It's a great big building, all lit up all night, uh, very glorious, but it's completely empty. Nobody's inside it ever. But that temple was built, and they kept asking the bishops of the Roman Catholic Church and others, and our own Anglican bishop there, could they join the churches together, the uh, ecumenical group? And the answer was always no. You do not accept the Nicene Creed. So it can exclude people and be a defense against them. It might also, a creed, alert you of a misunderstanding or something that you're not sure about. And if a phrase in a creed uh, makes you uncomfortable, then take the opportunity to discuss with a mature Christian, what is it? Why, why am I feeling it? What does this really mean? Can I get it right? And uh, you might go deeper. You might, in fact, have a misunderstanding about your own faith. And the creed can help to say to you, hey, come on. What is the truth? How can I get this sorted? And finally, on my introduction points, a creed is not scripture. Its whole authority and authenticity comes from the scriptures. And so you do have to look at the small print. You need to know your scriptures to know why these phrases are in the creed itself. So there we have an overview. So let's look at our particular section, uh, which is for he, for us and for our salvation, he him down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. Much shorter than the last part we had, uh, all about God being uh, of the same substance and so forth. What's the emphasis here? Well, we have it very clearly in the first line. It's for us and for our salvation. 
it's a big reminder that the scriptures, not just a few texts, but the whole of the scriptures, say it's God's choice and God's action. It's God's move. God's love for us stepped in to deal with a tyrant that we cannot escape without his help. And that's the tyrant of sin. Not sins that we've committed, but that propensity to do what is wrong. We see plenty of it in society around us, and we know our own vulnerability to it. We need rescue from this tyrant, and the wages of that tyrant are death. And he comes in to rescue us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. It's God's choice. He steps in out of love. But the story begins a long time ago. It's not just a New Testament creed. It's an all-Bible creed. As God intercepted a man called Abraham, and he gave him a promise, and he said, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And God is keeping his promise. Abraham didn't ask for it. It was God's action. God stepped out and picked that man. Not because he was better, but because he wanted to declare a promise that he's going to fulfill. And in Jesus, he fulfills it. And that's why from Pentecost onwards, we have the Gentiles roaring in onto this covenant that God has made with Abraham. But his next big move, of course, was to call a man called Moses. Again, Moses didn't choose it, but God planned his career to be in the Egyptian family and know all the principalities and stuff of Egypt and how you function in that society. And when he's escaped from it out in the desert, God calls Moses and says, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. It's God's choice and initiative for us and for our salvation. Another big move, of course, is for God to choose David as king of Israel. Not because he was better. Look at his life. Psalm 51 just tells you he was like us and failed on several occasions in his life. But yet God said to him in Psalm 89, Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. Do you want to turn it down? There's a bit of a boom which is irritating me probably more than everybody else. And I'll speak up. Um, I will not lie to David. His line shall continue forever, and his throne endure before me like the sun. It shall be established forever like the moon, an enduring witness in the skies. And by the time Jesus turns up, what are the people of his time saying when they greet him? Jesus, son of David. They're absolutely clear. And Bethlehem is the choice. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He comes as the son of David. Paul, in his little summary of what, what is the gospel, in the opening verses of Romans 1, Paul, set apart for the gospel of God, and then he defines it, the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Promises that God has made. So let's rejoice. Let's be worshipful. Even today, as we're reminded, it's for us and for our salvation. And Adele pointed out it's plural. It's not just me. It's a huge number of people to be included. All this 
is to rescue human beings from the powerful tyrant sin that resides in all of us. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul writes, So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God for us and for our salvation in the creed. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It's just so wonderful to realize that in our creed here, we have in this one line so far, so much that comes from the whole of Scripture. And as I said, the authenticity of that phrase comes and is based on what's in the Scriptures and beautifully summarized. It moves on to, he came down from heaven. Where's heaven? <laughs> Where is heaven? It's an extraordinary thing that people often think it's the sky. Well, unfortunately, the word is the sky. So where is heaven? We don't actually know. It's not very far away. But it's the phrase that the Bible uses for the dwelling place of God. And here in our creed, it reminds us that God created us in a universe. And he comes into that universe. He comes into his creation. He came down from heaven. And it's just wonderful to know that that journey has taken place. That he came to be amongst us. And then comes a technical word. He was incarnate. I always think in Italy when you go and you, know, you want meat or fish, it's carne. Incarnate. A technical word meaning made flesh. Become flesh. Become a human being. I mean, we use the word carnal in a rather derogatory sense, really, in our English language. Carnal, you know, or let's take an example. Hitler was the incarnation of evil. In other words, he embodied evil. And in one of the histories of uh, Hitler, written by an American journalist in the 1950s, said, Hitler was demonized before he became the man that we see in history. And that was a, a secular writer saying, I don't believe in demons, but that's what happened to him. He was incarnating evil. Whereas here we have God is incarnate. He comes. And the wonderful thing about the creed, which we may not recognize, I'm told, again, commentaries on the creed tell us, that the creed contains a series of verbal adjectives. And verbs are action words. I think the technical term is a participle. In other words, incarnate here, it's, it's to do with a verb, something happening, being done. And it's a reminder to us that God did again do something. He was made man. If you didn't understand what incarnate meant, you've got it there as a double entry. He was made man. Jesus faced temptation like we do. We know from the three Gospels the temptations begin. Hebrews 4, you will know this verse. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is fully man. 
and our creed emphasizes that. He was incarnate and was made man. Jesus is fully human and fully God. And the previous section of the creed was dealing with his deity so clearly. Colossians 2. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Emphasizing our two key lines in our creed so far. And you have come to fullness in him who is the head of every ruler and authority. And when you were dead in trespasses, God made you alive together with him when he forgave us all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. In those few verses, Paul underlines virtually all that's here in our section of the creed. Fully human, yet fully God. It's Jesus' own testimony. When the four men let that paralyzed man down through the roof in front of Jesus, Jesus then says, I forgive your sins. doesn't say God forgive your sins. There's a story of a, um, one of the Jewish survivors of the Holocaust who was having to serve a German officer who was seriously wounded and dying. And this German officer said to this Jewish man, would you forgive me for the atrocities we've committed against your people? And he said, I can't. Only God can. And that's where you have to address your request. The Pharisees were absolutely right when they criticized Jesus for saying, I forgive your sins. Because no human being can do that. I can forgive you for what you've done wrong to me, but I cannot forgive what you've done wrong all the other things. Only God can. And so here we have Jesus clearly defining himself as God and yet fully human amongst us. In Isaiah 43 and also in Deuteronomy, there's an interesting uh, phrase where rather than using the term Yahweh, I am, the writer in Isaiah and in Deuteronomy says, I, I am he. I, comma, I am he. Or in the Greek version of the Old Testament, which Paul, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul uses frequently for his New Testament comments, comments says, Ego eimi, I am, I am, twice. To replace the Yahweh phrase, I am. And yet Jesus, in the temple, after demonstrating and talking about some pretty profound things, says to those who are criticizing him, before Abraham was, I am getting as close as he can to the word Yahweh without actually saying it. <laughs> then there's that, I love the story of Jesus walking on the water and they think it's a ghost. And the disciples are in the rocking boat and they're worried and they're frightened, they're tired, they've been out all day with the feeding of the 5,000 and all that jazz. And Jesus reassures them and says, it is I, if you read the text. Are you one of those irritating people when you phone somebody and say, it's me? And because of phones don't transmit the whole of your vocal cords, you think, who on earth could that be? 
Now, you don't say, it is I, do you? You say, it's me. And the translators of our New Testament have correctly translated awkward Greek, apparently, I'm not an expert in that, ego eimi, as it is I, to alert us to the fact that Jesus is using that phrase from Isaiah. I am he. And so they recognize, not just with those fr- that phrase, it is I, which is bad English, but also the fact that he's using God's name and saying, declaring who he is was incarnate and was made man. Is this the Jesus you know? Is this the Jesus you are inspired by? The one of scripture that underlined by our phrases in our creed? Or have you lessened him to merely a good teacher? Or a friend? Or a buddy? Recognize it. Acknowledge in yourself, have we reduced Jesus to a miracle-doing person who can sort out our lives? Or has indeed God made man amongst us? So let's move on to the next part, that he was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. And then I've put up, in the Book of Common Prayer, it says, was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary. And let me just highlight the fact that a lot of ink was spent deciding whether on this should this be of or from, and should the and be that and or of. And General Synod spent some considerable time discussing this one, just to remind us that creeds sometimes need tinkering with, and then approved not just by one or two people, but by lots of people. Um, the Nicene Creed, as we were told in the first one by Dell, was 325 AD, was uh, first brought in. It was then adjusted for further heresies coming in uh, in 381, and then in 451, again, some further additions made because of new heresies and new misunderstandings growing. And this is very money. You know, I have to say, what's the fuss uh, about that. Well, actually, it's when I, I didn't in, listen to the debate or follow it. I just knew that uh, experts in Greek and biblical theology were dealing with it at General Synod, fortunately. I imagine some of the ordinary Synod members were saying, ooh, what's all this about? Why all the fuss? Well, actually, the wording that we have in the common worship version, which we generally use, the Church of England typically, if you look through its complete morass of papers and pages in its common worship book, you'll find the old one with the of instead of the from. Why the fuss? Well, um, it's the argument is that from, with the word and, reminds us much more how Mary is fully involved in the incarnation. She's not just a vehicle She's not just the person through whom Jesus arrives. No, something deep happens in that God becomes fully identified with human beings. The birth was absolutely normal. So when we have virgin birth, it fits in songs much easier, more, more easily than virginal conception. I always remember virginal conception because my tutor Tom Smale was Scottish and he's, the virginal conception is always stuck in my head. But that's where the miracle happens. And that's what the scriptures say so clearly. Matthew 
chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So there's a following there. There's the word ek in Greek, from the Holy Spirit. Or Galatians 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman. Not just through a woman, but actually of a woman. In the early debates about the Nicene Creed, people were thinking the blood of Jesus must be the Spirit's blood and the body of Jesus must be Mary's. They didn't understand enough about genetics, but then we still don't. And to try and understand which parts of Jesus were God and which parts were were human flesh, that's a misunderstanding. Our creed is telling it that uh, Jesus was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and is therefore fully human being. And so I like the, uh, the argument that has taken place to do a slight tweak change to the English translation. But it also reminds us, doesn't it, that when God gets involved with us, he truly wants to be involved with us. So the Spirit of God in you is working through your human flesh to bring about the plan of God. You're not just a conduit for his son. They are, God is using you and you're involved. And our creed emphasizes that in Mary's role for us. Isaiah 9, for a child has been born for us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders and he's named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Oh yeah, the Old Testament's got it already. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For the Jewish person, Father is clearly our Heavenly Father, Yahweh. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David. They were back into the link of God's plan and for his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And Mary. You know, Mary's an educated person. She is a teenager, we assume, in the story of the Bible and the virginal conception. But like Jewish women of her day, she's educated, she knows her Bible. That's why she can write such a beautiful poem as we call the Magnificat that was in our reading today. She understands clearly the scriptures. How will this be, says Mary, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born shall be called Holy, the Son of God. So be encouraged that if he chose Mary, not because she was better or special, but because he chooses, he's chosen you and me to serve him. So let's come to our conclusion. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. Hans Kung, a Roman Catholic theologian, said clearly once, the Holy Spirit is an active power, not just a means of getting Mary pregnant. And God's Holy Spirit is an active power in us not just for God's glory but because he wants to fulfill his plan 
For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. It's entirely God's decision and choice. It's entirely his action to rescue us from the powerful grip of sin which leads to death. And was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. That fullness of God took on full human nature. And as John says in his gospel, we've seen his glory full of grace and truth. Can we let the creed inspire us to true faith? I'm going to ask you now to stand as we are in the presence of God who became one of us and we're going to sing and allow these creedal statements that are part of the Nicene Creed in our song to help you to worship him, to trigger those reminders of key points in what we believe and what we know. Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you that theologians and discussions and arguments have led to the writing of a creed that helps us to see the key points. Give us grace to know you as you really are and not to invent someone other and so deprive you of your glory and your majesty or your power. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.